KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio in depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. The first two coronavirus vaccines, the ones made by Pfizer and Moderna, have been out there for months now. But the process of making them, shipping them, and getting them to people has been a lot choppier than we hoped. I wanted to know more about how these vaccines are made. And because we definitely need more vaccine than is out there right now, why can't we just make it faster? So I reached out to Dr. Jason Diaz. He's an assistant professor at LaSalle University with a background in viruses and vaccines. COVID-19 vaccines right now seem to not be going out fast enough, right? That goes for production, delivery, process of getting it into people's arms. But before we kind of get into that, let's break it down on a production as a whole kind of level, right? After the paperwork, safety trials, everything is over. What is the recipe and ingredients for these vaccines? Sure. I'm very happy to say that um, there's been a lot of transparency in the formulation of the vaccines. So, of course, these are called mRNA vaccines. And so the major component is that mRNA, that messenger RNA, which is a kind of nucleotide similar to DNA. Um, And then that's going to be wrapped in this special lipid bubble called a lipid nanoparticle, which is going to deliver the mRNA into the cell. So that's already two kind of classes of things that are in the vaccine. It's the RNA wrapped around by lipids. And then that's in a solution that's um, what we say buffered. So it has a very constant pH that's going to match kind of what the pH is inside your body uh, and water. And there's also a little bit of sugar in there, um, which is just to help um, keep the vaccine from being damaged when it's frozen. Because we want to freeze it to keep it um, fresh, so to speak. Um, but we also don't want any of those ice, crickle, ice crystals to damage the lipid nanoparticles. So that's what the sugar is there for. For the lipids, a lot of them are kind of generic lipids that you might be familiar with. So, for example, cholesterol is a major part of these particles because that's a, you know, something that's really useful for helping to make the shape of the lipid nanoparticle. But I will say that both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines each in their mix of lipids, there's about three or four in each of those. Um, each of them have at least one that's a little bit new. That's been, you know, a recently patented version of a lipid that, um, that experimentally has been shown to maybe help either stabilize the RNA inside that lipid droplet or maybe have some other function. And so um, there are some, of course, new lipids that are being used now, but largely these are biomolecules that we are very familiar with and that I think we should be um, comfortable, you know, being injected. And so the question then is, well, what's the production problem? Because like, you know, I think a lot of people are thinking, is it that the lipids are crazy or is mRNA hard to make? And actually all those things are relatively straightforward. The bottleneck really is in the process of mixing the RNA with the lipids, okay? And this is, I think, one thing that's very different from most vaccines that we are used to. Most vaccines that, we're used, that we are used to are either actual virus particles, 
you know, alive or dead or a part of that virus particle, so a protein. And so in those cases, those are just, we take the particle or the protein out, we purify it, put it into that buffered solution, stick it into, into someone's arm. What we haven't really been doing with vaccines is trying to get this perfect mix of multiple components in just the right ratio to get this final product. So that's a new process thing. And it's a kind of, you know, it's down to an exact science, but it requires some very special setup. So there's this whole technology called microfluidics where at a very, 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 very small uh, scale, we have very small volumes of liquid being injected at just the right flow rate, at just the right times to mix these components in such a way that the final product are these perfectly formed spheres of lipids with at least one or likely more copies of mRNA inside. And that's a that's a very, very difficult process. And, um, you know, people have figured that out, but it's not one of those things that, like, you can just go to, like, any vaccine manufacturer and they'll be able to do it. It really requires specialized um, equipment and, and expertise. And I think that's where, um, that's where a lot of, I think, the bottleneck is as far as the production side is concerned. It's, it's really the process and not necessarily the materials themselves. Because mm-hmm. is that much different um, compared to how other vaccines are put together then? Like, what are some of the similarities and differences? Sure. Yeah. So so let's talk about some similarities. So in, uh, in both cases, you know, both older vaccines and the new ones, we are essentially the active ingredient and something that we're purifying out of a culture of some sort. So what do I mean by that? Let's take the human papillomas virus vaccine, for example, like Gardasil. Those vaccines are proteins that um, are from the HPV virus, and they are made actually in yeast cells. So these are yeasts that have been genetically modified to produce these proteins. You grow this in this huge vat called a bioprocessor, and then you know you take some of you take the the yeast out, you you kill the yeast, and you get rid of all the stuff you don't need, and you somehow purify that vaccine protein out. In the same way, you do the same thing with mRNA. You have bacteria in this case that have the DNA for uh, a COVID gene called Spike. They make a whole ton of um, RNA for this, and then you can purify the RNA out. And so that purif- so there are going to be some di- slight differences because protein is not the same as RNA, and I don't need to necessarily go into those specifics because in general, the idea is the same. But what's different, of course, is that for the mRNA uh, vaccines, there's this extra step of now taking that purified product and mixing it just perfectly with the correct balance of lipids and then putting that into some solution. Whereas for the HPV vaccine, you can just take the protein you've purified out of cells and mix it with whatever the final formulation is and then stick it into a person. Um, and so that extra step, it sounds like just just one extra step, but actually the technology required to do that, not just correctly, but consistently correctly. That's the other thing, right? When you're doing something on this scale, you want to make sure that you are consistently for every lot making active vaccines. So everything is being mixed correctly every single time for millions and millions of doses. And so that's where that's where the, like the big difference is. And again, that's where the bottleneck is for, for production so far. Mm hmm. And I keep thinking about the flu vaccine because I think that's one that a lot of people get every year. And we always hear that it's a little bit different, right, depending on the strands that scientists predict. And I keep thinking, is the COVID vaccine going to be like that one day? What are kind of the strengths and weaknesses with respect to adapting it to the future? That's a great question. And I think we have a lot of great experience with influenza. I know that people have 
mixed feelings about, you know, the influenza vaccine not always being, you know, 90% effective or necessarily. And that's just because flu is just constantly shifting and we're honestly doing our best and we're keeping, you know, we're making more improvements every time. But, uh, you know, the flu vaccine in at least in the United States is uh, grown in chicken eggs uh, as a kind of cheap and easy way to make a ton of vaccine. And, and there's this whole infrastructure of surveillance of, you know, flu that's happening in the Southern hemisphere that then informs what's probably going to come in the Northern hemisphere. And so we have a little bit of lead time. Uh, and so it's it's a very tight process for the flu vaccine, and and we're really relying on isolating those flu va- viruses that are happening in, in the southern hemisphere to then create the vaccine uh, in the northern hemisphere. One of the really big advantages with mRNA technology is that you don't even need to have a physical sample of what actually made someone sick. You just need to know what the sequence is for that genome, and that's actually how the RNA vaccines came into being. You know, the first published genome was in January of last year of coronavirus. And within a couple of days, the group that ended up pairing with Moderna uh, at the NIH was able to just figure out, okay, we're going to do the spike protein and we have the sequence for it. And they can synthesize it without having any clinical samples from China. This was, again, back in January of 2020. And so because all you need to know is the sequence, you can actually adapt the sequence of the mRNA component very quickly. What's very exciting to me is that it looks like the FDA is going to allow Pfizer and Moderna and other mRNA vaccines to uh, have a much smaller, it's sort of a clinical trial, it's not really a a full clinical trial, three-phase clinical clinical trial, but it's going to be a much smaller experimental um, setup for testing these alternative vaccines, uh, the, these, these new, like the ones that are going to be matched, like the new variants. And so instead of having to wait to do a whole, like, you know, six-month three-phase trial for every time we have to do a new, you know, a new sequence to match a new strain, the FDA, ha- the FDA has said, you know, uh, these guys can just do a small safety study to make sure that they're safe and to make sure they're still immunogenic. We're still producing antibody. Um, but that's a much easier pathway now for Pfizer and Moderna and other mRNA vaccines to quickly generate new vaccines that are better matched to what's going out there. So I actually think you know, in the future, if we're in a situation where COVID becomes the flu, uh, the flu, and that it's just always here and always changing every year, I actually think we're going to have a better time keeping up with COVID changes than we are with influenza changes because of how rapid we can change the formulation of the um, vaccine. But you know, that's my that's a hypothesis. We'll have to see how that really plays out. But from a technology standpoint, I would actually be very optimistic that at worst it'll be just as good as influenza. And we actually have some reason to think that it might be a little bit even better for COVID than it has been for influenza. It's positive to think about that, but we're still in this phase of not having production meet what we need right now. The drug makers were on Capitol Hill and they, they're promising all of these doses, right, by the end of March. I mean, where, where do you think things went wrong? Because they've promised bigger numbers before. And do you think this can be done now? Yeah, that's a hard question because, because there's a lot of players involved, right? There's the production from the companies and then there's shipping. There's who does it go to? How are those sites then delivering it to patients? Um, are they being are they able to be efficient with the patients? Are they able to maintain cold storage? The Pfizer requires it ultra cold, and the Moderna one um, not quite as cold, but still it needs to be frozen at least at the start. 
so this is this is just an area that I'll just be clear that I, I'm not as informed and expert on exactly the supply chain from start to finish, but I can imagine that you know. Actually, I know for a fact that Pfizer had a huge stockpile of, of, of vaccines ready to go before they even got approval. But they want to be careful about, you know, I'm just going to speak from, the, I guess, the manufacturer side. You want to be careful about shipping out these vaccines so that you can guarantee that where it goes is actually going to get used. Because, like, it's not one of those cases where, like, if I have a million doses, I'm, just gonna sh- I'm not just going to ship them out immediately. Because if, if I don't have faith and reason to believe that they're actually all going to be used, I just lost a whole bunch of product, right? And so um, I think that there's, you know, whenever you talk about supply chain and there's a complex interplay of all the players who have to receive it, track it, store it, and then send it out. And any, any kind of hiccups in any of those can have ripple effects both upstream and downstream. And as we've seen, you know, um, we didn't really have a national distribution strategy, uh, at least last year. Um, under the new administration, things are changing, but it'll take time for those to really be, to be felt. And what I mean by that is if we don't have a national strategy, what had happened was, right, the states were given allotments and were given, you know, you can figure out how, how, to, how to dole out the different doses. And depending on how efficient those processes are, um, is really going to determine how quickly you can get through your doses and therefore how quickly you can ask for more doses. So it's like I said, it's a complex interplay between the different players. And for something like this, the more centralized you can make things, meaning you have like a central like registry of here's everyone who needs to get vaccinated. Here's the master list. This is exactly where it's going to go. And this is the process for, you know, when people can't make their appointment, we immediately know who we're going to call. So if you don't have like those types of very robust logistics in place, then that really is going to slow down supply, even if the physical physical supply is actually robust. I think we've seen very different outcomes of that, even within the same state. Different counties are able to kind of handle that stress differently. And, and again, you know, I think people are just being a little wary about sending out doses unless they're sure that they're actually going to be used. We, we seem to always point the finger at production when it's it's yeah. it's so much more than that and speaking of like bumping up production Johnson and Johnson what makes this one this one dose vaccine different from the two dose vaccines on the market mm-hmm. right now and how much do you see this you know playing into getting basically the world vaccinated this is another area where I am, again, very optimistic and th- this is coming out of a year where we've all had lots of reason to be pessimistic but Again, so I just want to really highlight, as someone, again, with a background in virology and vaccine design a little bit, like, I, I'm very, I'm very glad for what is happening on the vaccine front, at least from the production and, and, uh, and uh, development side, because what, there are lots of great things to be about the Johnson Johnson vaccine that we should be excited about. The fact that it's single dose means that you just need people to come in once, get the vaccine, and then they're done. So the logistics for that are a lot simpler. You don't need people to be coming back for a second dose. Also, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine doesn't require those super cold uh, storage um, methods for, for, for during transit and things like that. And so the logistics of actually transporting the vaccine to, to healthcare workers so that they can then administer it to patients is going to be much simpler because it's really going to be very sim- similar to what we do for other vaccines already. So we can really rely on the older systems um, as well. And it's, it's very effective. It's like, you know, it's, it's, I would argue, even if the numbers aren't exactly the same, it's just as effective as the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines. And so now that this is also coming online, this is also going to 
potentially really increase our vaccination rate uh, because now we have three different stockpiles that we're pulling from and some some providers will just have an easier time um, administering it. So, for example, I'm thinking of places like, you know, CVS or pharmacies or doctor's offices, right? They're going to be much better equipped to administer the Johnson Johnson's vaccine because they're not required, they're not relying on these cold temperatures, these colder temperatures. And so that's going to open up a yet another stream of um, opportunity for people to get vaccinated. So I'm very excited about the Johnson Johnson vaccine coming online because I think it's going to, like I said, really push vaccination up to where it needs to go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we covered everything and, you know, I made a note to end on a positive note, but I feel like this has been more positive than I thought. Is there anything else that you're keeping an eye on? I mean, this last year has been crazy in science, medicine, everything. Um, What's like something that you just want people to know who may be doom scrolling out there some days or just like need to think about something else? This isn't something that's going on yet, but something that I think I think people are doing a good job of trying to prep people for this. But I just want to make sure that people understand that once we're vaccinated, it doesn't immediately mean that we're going to be relaxing, like masking and distancing measures necessarily. There's going to be a lag period where there's going to be uh, as more and more people get vaccinated, the people who have already been vaccinated are still going to be asked and really required to, to still be doing masking and, stay, and and staying distant so that because by doing all those together, um, you really cut the transmission route much quicker. So I just know that people who are getting vaccinated are going to feel maybe a little more more comfortable about interacting with other people, which is great. Um, but I think in some cases they might feel more relaxed about the, the safety measures. And I would just encourage them just to have the mindset that for at least this year, for this whole year, I think we should just have the mindset that we will be putting into place still masking and distancing, even with vaccination. And if we can do that, we're going to be set up in a great way to really start relaxing those in a dramatic way going into next year. And, and you know, I think if the more we do this this year, the more likely we can have like, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas in a position where people can actually very safely start meeting each other for, for those big family holidays that's really important in this country. And so I just want people just to be kind of psychologically ready to kind of still do their part to protect the people who haven't been vaccinated yet and to be, you know, to really be an agent of, you know, helping people navigate deciding whether they should get a vaccine. Um, I'm obviously pro-vaccine because I feel they're very safe and effective, uh, but everyone is going to be coming to that question a little bit differently. I think if we can have conversations about you know, helping people manage the risk benefit analysis for the vaccine and all these other measures, um, we're going to finally get around around this. And so I'm optimistic for the fall, but I'll be more optimistic the more people continue to kind of do their part this year. Definitely. I've been hearing the fall a lot. I like that. I like the fall. I'm ready for that. Thank you so much, Jason. Me me too. So as as a faculty member, like I am so excited to finally like, you know, be with my faculty colleagues and my students on campus in an environment where I'm a little bit less anxious. So I'm very excited for the fall and we're going to have a good summer because we know outdoors is fine. And so people are going to be really, I think, taking advantage of the outdoors this summer. And so I think people are going to be coming into the fall very, very optimistic. So yeah, I think we're going to get there. 
That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.